As I mentioned to Malcolm, we have a, a little bit more limited time than usual because Rabbi Yudin has prepared a, uh, a Shabbos Haggadol address, which is going to be coming up in the 8 o'clock hour here at JM and the AM. With that in mind, he is the vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Malcolm Honline is with us. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. I'm jealous that you're there and I'm here. Yeah. It's good to talk to you anywhere. I appreciate that. And uh, I wish you were here, frankly, because I'd like you to participate in the big simcha. But apparently the Honline family has other plans for Pesach. So we wish you well all the way from... Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the judicial reform issue has been tabled, so to speak. Uh, whatever compromise, deal, decisions uh, that were supposedly going to be made are all on hold now. This, of course, announced by the prime minister, and it has stemmed the tide of the protests, the demonstrations, and maybe some of the vitriol that we've gotten used to over the last few weeks. What is your reaction to pausing the judicial reform issue? Well, I think it was a wise decision, uh, necessary, given the the intensity of the feeling and the disruption of everyday life and the threats and the misrepresentation distortions that were becoming commonplace. Uh, I think that they failed in the beginning to properly create a context and uh, and explain what was intended uh, and instead created what people felt was a, a locomotive uh, rushing ahead in the Knesset to get uh, to get this legislation passed. But, you know, it has been a long-held position of left and right that they needed to have some judicial reform, some way to uh, rein in the, the Supreme Court, which has aggregated it to itself powers over the years, uh, far beyond what was intended, and and far more than, let's say, in the United States. But there, there was no real event where these things were laid out to the people, and it instead became a rallying point, I think, for many who didn't like the outcome of the election and people who have other grievances and the fissures in Israeli society, as in any country, uh, came to the fore. Uh, you know, and then the foreign interventions, including by the United States government, which uh, many felt was uh, inappropriate. I didn't see the president making comments about the millions in the streets in Paris demonstrating against Macron and his uh, plan or to, to extend the age of retirement. Um, I think that they, you know that we need a calming period where issues can be rightfully addressed, where the vitriol gets reduced, and people are reminded that uh, you know we only have one state. We have to protect it. We have to have a legitimate discussion. I don't think you demean people because they have a different point of view. But on the other hand, you can't have a situation where soldiers, reservists say they're not going to serve. Or people, this is uh, uh, really unprecedented, I think. The, and, and we have to take a step back and have those things as well addressed. Um. Oh, a couple of questions. Do you feel that, the, and I know, I'm not really asking for a prediction, I'm asking for a feeling, you know, your your hand on the pulse of the situation. Do you think that months from now, which is the plan, you know, when re, when negotiations reopen, do you think there's more of a chance of a calmer type of compromise? You know, this, as you described it, the way this was thrust 
onto the you know onto Israeli society, onto the electorate, you know, was was in a, was done in a pretty uh, abrupt manner. With with this pause, with this recess, do you think there really can be some type of conclusive compromise months from now? I think that there could be because I think everybody recognizes the the political danger to them. You saw the Likud's number dropping. You see the rise of some of the other parties and uh, the splits within the, the government, but also people's frustration uh, over this. They don't want to see, um, you know, the society disrupted and, and the threats to the security of Israel, as described by people from the government and outside of the government. Uh, but you know, there is something I think remarkable about the fact that you had such a significant turnout, uh, both pro and con. And I have to say the right only the, uh, the other night turned out many tens of thousands of people and they did win the election where a lot of these things were presented as plans of the government. Um, you know the the uh, disruptions in in uh, the life and the strikes and the blocking the highways and all that that occurred. I think people generally want uh, the majority will want uh, a resolution now. Some of the opposition will say, you know, we got Netanyahu on the ropes. We might as well keep him there because the longer he's he's fighting, the long the more he he loses. Maybe their hope is that they go to a, another election. Israelis are sick and tired of having all these elections. So that argues for a greater reform. But the, the um, um, you know, the sense is that the moderate voice is getting support. And that's within the, within the government and in the opposition that uh, there is some sort of a, a shifting. But the, the expression of of democracy and the fact that you had all these demonstrations without without rioting, without uh, looting, without any of the manifestations that we've seen here and elsewhere, uh, I think is is a remarkable testament. And the fact, to me, the fact that they wave the flag and don't burn the flag yeah. is a reaffirmation of commitment to the state and and that the flag became the symbol of these demonstrations on both sides. Yeah. It's funny you say that because you know where we are and where we're staying. So, of course, we were in the middle of so many demonstrations. And I was expressing to, to people who are here in Israel, it's impossible to tell which side is which because both of them are flying the Israeli flag proudly, which is really amazing. Um, secondly, on the firing of the defense minister. So w- was that what eventually gave Bibi the strength to go to this compromise idea, or I should say this recess idea, or was it, was there so much backlash from this act of firing the defense minister for his statements regarding judicial reform that essentially at that point Bibi was you know, painted into a corner and had no choice but to come out and say, okay, everyone calm down, we're going to revert to you know, some type of recess here? Well, as far as I know, it's still not finalized that he's fired. There's some people are saying that he'll be reinstated. There are people say still at the meetings. Um, and um, I don't know that Netanyahu can back down from it. He might want to. He may, want, he may reach some understanding with, uh, with Galant, who has always been a loyal supporter and, you know, is in that wing together, you know, with Dichter Barkat, remember all these people who are not ideologues and who have had a long history of constructive roles in, in 
many governments. Uh, I think it became a rallying point. I don't think that a lot of the opposition that took to the streets uh, using this as cover were, were big fans of Galvantness. So they were, were, were you know, uh, would, would have in any other circumstance voted from rallied to him. But I think that it became uh, a step too far for some and for others uh, became a point where they could, you know, sort of join the, the opposition, their opposition, in defending uh, uh, Gallant or opposing Netanyahu for one of his own people. So it's still unclear what his status is now. Yeah, I get that. I was wondering if that did a BB in or if it uh, gave him some type of perception of strength because he was willing to take that risk politically and literally fire. No, I don't think I don't think people saw it as a as a wise move. Or I, when I was there, I did not hear that even from people in the government, uh, in in the Kazon cabinet, that that expression. It's interesting, you know. Maybe postmortem will find out, right. but I, I don't think so. Um, all right, so a couple of weeks ago we spoke on, on a Friday, and then, and it's one of the reasons, frankly, that even though we have this distance between us this week and some hecticness, of course, as we prepare for the big simcha, I wanted to make sure to get you on the air because minutes after we left the air, remember I had discussed with you and I had asked the question about Saudi Arabia and how they could never pull the trigger on the Abraham Accord type of relationship. And it always seemed they were on the, on the verge, on the cusp. They were about to do this, about to do that. Israel was, you know, they, they felt it was going to be a close ally of theirs, et cetera. Etc. Etc. Et and a few minutes after we left the air that day, it was announced a diplomatic relations uh, um, uh, agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And now, obviously, this audience for a couple of weeks has wanted to hear your reaction to that. What could you tell us about that deal, that diplomatic arrangement that's been made? Well, I think it's very significant, and, and it's a larger context also. Uh, I think what the Saudis did was largely a response to the perception that America is withdrawing from the region, that they're angry at the United States. They gave the United States conditions for renewal, for uh, establishment relations with Israel, including a, a, a domestic peaceful nuclear program, uh, and uh, they want the non-NATO status uh, to be able to purchase weapons and things that they they feel they need. They did as you know, spent $37 billion and a new contract with Boeing for aircraft, not, not military aircraft. But they, they feel that they've been slighted uh, by its way of feeling in the UAE and in other countries that I visited, even in the last few weeks where I heard this repeatedly, uh, a sense that, that the U.S. is withdrawing from the region, even with the joint exercises and other things that have uh, taken place. A perception in the Middle East is reality. So that's I think, a, a major motivating factor. Second, they're showing that they have options, uh, domestic to U.S. and others. The, the, each one has their own agenda. It's not. Uh, it's a renewal of relationship, not establishing, because they had them until a couple years ago, and after the Saudi embassy and consulates were ransacked or attacked by Iranians, they broke the diplomatic relations. The tensions between them, the issues remain. Iran is not giving up its designs on Mecca and Medina and, and the, you know, the importance of being the control of the two holy sites. They are Sunni Shiite. Their divide still holds. Uh, what, what Iran hopes to get is, number one, that the Iran television network, which is based in Saudi Arabia and has been very effective in criticizing the government, would, uh, would stop their broadcasts. They 
uh, obviously there's some uh, degree of trade or other things that they want, but it, I think that that is not the major agenda. For the Saudis, the big thing is the trying to neutralize the Houthis or stop their attacks on Saudi Arabia, which are funded and armed and aided and abetted by Iran. Uh, there they have a different agenda than, say, the UAE. The UAE wants to see North and South redivided. They want to base it above over not Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia right now wants them to stop sending drones and attack missiles against their infrastructure, airports, other key sites. They also, as I said, have an agenda with the U.S. They have, um, and, and they, I mean, they have very little to gain economically by joining, let's say, the Shanghai Cooperation Council. But I think that that is as significant a move where they are joining an alignment which is which was created by China with Russia in it, Pakistan, India, the the Central Asian states. Uh, it can be seen as a counter to Western alliances. They're uh, throwing in their lot with them on this. I think was a very significant manifestation. But they know, <laughs> bottom line, that their interests don't lie long term with that, but with the West. Uh, a lot depends on what will happen now with these exchange of visits. Raisi, the president of Iran, will visit Saudi Arabia. The Saudis have accepted an invitation to visit, I guess, the crown prince to visit uh, Iran. And there will be a lot of things going on, but this is superficial. The bottom line, the fire between them is going to continue to burn. Those issues have not been done away with. Bahrain, I think, will follow the course and also establish relationships with Iran, even though Iran has designs on destroying the country and it, because it's the gateway to Katif, the oil-rich sector of, of Saudi Arabia, which has which is 95% Shiite. Um, uh, UAE, obviously. We also, in all of this, uh, in the fog, missed the, the fact that uh, Assad has reestablished diplomatic relations with UAE, I think with Saudi Arabia, if not done on the way. Um, we're seeing a lot of things happening that are, are of significance. In the same time, you have Erdogan praising Israel, thanking Israel for the field hospital, um, which only recently returned and uh, took care of, uh, I think, about 500 people, did many operations, other stuff there. Uh, but he's facing a very tough election on May 14th. Uh, Iran is near collapse economically. We see the dissent amongst the leadership ranks growing all the time, and I'm in touch with people there. I hear it. It's it's quite remarkable, but not exploited by the U.S. We hear the U.S. may be working on a, a prisoner deal, which would free up money being held by South Korea, billions of dollars to go to Iraq. This would be a critical mistake that we learned nothing from the last time when we sent pallets of cash. That is what feeds terrorism and enables them to continue their aggressive behavior in Africa, in Asia, certainly in the Middle East, but even off our coast. I mean, not far from Florida, we see how much Iran is expanding its influence and activities, in, the, especially in the newly elected leftist governments in South America. So it's very complicated, uh, and I'm just talking, you know, from the top of my head, just some of the uh, factors that are involved in this. Uh, if, in fact, um, its perception is reality in the Middle East, as you described it, then an alliance or on paper with China is really significant. Um, that's number one. 
But I'm, I'm curious about the U.S. and Israeli reaction. Does the U.S. consider this a slap in the face? And was Israel, was Jerusalem caught off guard by the entire announcement? Well, the latter part, they say no. They say that they knew this was developing. I do not believe people knew. This is not a new thing. You know, they started this process in Oman and then in Iraq. The details were not worked out with China. They have been negotiated over the last two years. China moved in then, invited them, kept, kept them for three days. There, Xi, if you remember, the president, the head of the China, visited uh, Saudi Arabia and had Raisi come to China, invited him. Uh, so th- this is a process that's been ongoing for, for a while. That they all knew, you know, that those discussions were right, going on. Right, but what disturbed me was that we were being convinced by the media that the other process was continuing in earnest at the same time. It, it, it seemed like the West, the U.S., Israel, whoever you want to put it to the Abraham Accords and Abraham Accords-like countries, it, it's, and that we spoke about it that day. It just seemed that, that that kept progressing on that track and that the other track just completely took everybody by surprise. Well, it went very quickly. I mean, it was just a couple of days. Remember, they came to, to, to China then and in a couple of days announced it because, as I said, everything had been cooked. And it was in everybody's interest, and they had these visits, et cetera. So this really was brewing for a long time, and then it quickly. Whether they were up to date, it did not appear that the United States knew that this was going to come down. And as I said, you know, there's different views about how much Israel knew. Slap in the face? knew that the exchanges. Slap in the face of the U.S. or not? I think it is a, a significant statement. But they feel, and they, I mean, I've heard this from the leaders now over a couple of years, you know, they feel the United States has been slapping them, right. even though, you know, they, they try to cover over after Khashoggi and some other things, but they still feel that they've been slighted and that the, um, uh, you know, that they wanted to demonstrate that they have alternatives. Right. It's, it's not a financial deal, yeah. you know, they, but remember, remember that China is the number one purchaser from both Saudi Arabia and Iran of oil. Right. And therefore is in a unique position. Bottom line, and I'm shocked more colonists haven't written this, bottom line, not much mileage from the Biden trip to Saudi Arabia. Agreed? Well, the fist bump got a lot of mileage, but the... uh, (laughs) The memes got a lot of mileage. Yeah, but there wasn't the kind of follow-up, and it didn't undo the perception and they say that when we were under attack, the United States didn't respond and that the messages they keep getting, they feel despite the fact that you had, you know, Juniper Oak, you had all these other joint exercises that CENTCOM I think has done a, a very good job trying to, to pull things together. One of the disturbing aspects is that you see Qatar emerging in, in again and playing a key role and will be accepted despite the fact that they continue to fund including in the United States, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel activities, that they continue to have Al Jazeera, which is such a negative force. They continue to support terrorist operations and Muslim Brotherhood uh, stuff. Again, another one of the various ramifications of this, that uh, unless there's a really knowledgeable analyst, they don't even raise these issues. Oh, yes. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Round the world of web at AlchemSingle.com and the AlchemSingle Network and, of course, in the beloved NSN app. Uh, reminder, our friends at Jewish World Review, phenomenal resource for thousands of articles about Israel and the Jewish world. 
to print out before Shabbos and to enjoy and to learn from during your Shabbos Agadol and weekend. Check out jewishworldreview.com. Malcolm Holmline is vice chairman, conference of presidents of major American Jewish organizations. What can you tell us about the Iranian attempt to carry out a terror attack on Greek Jewish sites? Well, the, uh, we don't have all of the, the information. We know that there were arrests. We know that this is one of the many plots in Europe today by Iranian-backed uh, terrorists, uh, and whether it's uh, organizations or just uh, offshoots. But Iran has been trying this in France, Germany, England, in some cases successfully. Uh, there were arrests in Germany as well recently of Iranian-backed uh, terrorists. This is, it, it tells you what their real goal is. It's not just the destruction of Israel, it's to kill Jews and to, to uh, when they can't respond and stand up militarily to what they feel are assaults, they, they go after vulnerable populations of Jews. Uh, I think people should take this very seriously when they're traveling to Europe, and I swear, uh, to keep it in mind, especially with the upcoming Yanta. The, uh, it, it tells you also the nature of, of Iran's uh, hatred and uh, and act, uh, involvements, it's, it should, should be subject to many more sanctions. There have been some sanctions uh, imposed, but the, even the idea that we would negotiate with them on the JCPOA or, or enter it today, I think is, is uh, inexplicable, uh, let alone the idea that we would release any money, whether we or indirectly we, through the release of the funds that are being held in South Korea, about six or seven billion dollars of the Iranian funds. Uh, it, it will only feed this monster. They're not going to feed the people. The economy is in total ruins. The people are, are living on nothing, literally. And the uh, the the currency devalued another twenty five percent in the last month. And it was hard to see that because we didn't think it could devalue any more than it has. And it's there's. Um, you know, it's a time when we should be leveraging it, and instead, they're selling uh, stuff to Russia. They're selling Russian oil. They're bypassing the sanctions. Their income from oil has gone up, and it's the the leadership that benefits, not the people. Yeah. So the Iran is in a, a you know is in a vulnerable position, and we should not do anything that props up this government. Yeah, they're in a vulnerable position and not suffering at all because of their vulnerability. They have countries ready to make deals with them and certainly uh, established diplomatic relations. They're at the center of whatever Russian progress is going to be in that region. Obviously, they're now at the center right. of Chinese progress in that region. It's unbelievable that a country like this is so committed to terror, not just Jews. I'm sure they have commitments you know, for other uh, sites as well uh, to carry out terror attacks. It's amazing how, they are, uh, how all of that is ignored by different world powers. It, it's ignored, and, and it's at their peril that a lot of the European countries now say, well, we should pay more attention to it because, you know, they're operating against us and on our turf, and that they are uh, going after, uh, you know, uh, European countries. They also do it at the behest of their new patron, Russia, who, with whom, whom they're selling, you know, huge quantities of ammunition to, to the Ukraine. As you know, that Russians are sending captured equipment back to Iran, giving it to Iran to, to reverse engineer. Uh, and, uh, and just as the United States captured Iranian weapons going to the Houthis and are saying they're going to send it to, to the Ukrainian forces. But the, but you're, you're absolutely right. There is a, a neglect. It's not benign. It's, it's very malign. 
neglect that for which we will pay a heavy price. Iran's activities in Syria are going on increasingly uh, because Russia withdraws so that they, they ship their own anti-aircraft system there and activated it. They put missiles. They, they are sending in through the humanitarian aid convoys for the victims of the earthquake in, in Syria. Uh, they're sending in weapons through that. And for Israel, it's much harder, you know, when you have 20 trucks to pick out the ones that have the, the weapons. And the so all of this paints a picture of, of Iran taking advantage of it. I just saw some African leaders, and they're talking about Iran's nefarious activities. And it doesn't take a lot of money to get Hezbollah and others to activate. And their militias, Iran-backed militias, are uh, active in, in Syria. Israel continues to take out arms depot, arms caches that are being built up for them, for Hezbollah and for the Iranian militias in Syria. Uh, for use against uh, Israel in the future. Are the are, are the African leaders you've met with frustrated with the um, with, with with the way the United States has reacted toward Iran? Uh, would they like to see the United States be a little bit tougher when it comes to the Iranians? They would like to see us remove the ability of Iran to continue what it's doing. By the way, they feel the same thing about China. China has a scorcher policy. They go into these countries. They give aid with very high interest rates where the countries can't meet the debt payment. Then they take over critical infrastructure, facilities, ports. They did it in Sri Lanka. They're doing it with the Road and Belt Initiative, which until now scared some of the countries like Saudi Arabia and others because they saw how China is extending its sphere of influence, getting itself established in the, in the Gulf was a, a prime target and in the Middle East. As you know, they try to take over the ports in Israel too. They tried to... Uh, have increased trade. They have delegations in Israel regularly taking, trying to buy high tech and, and other things. And, you know, they're very aggressive. They, and now they've been given, uh, you know, a golden path, so to speak, by virtue of what, what has happened in the last few weeks. But their activities continue to, to expand and to grow their, uh, their Belt and Road uh, initiative. It's funny. I always thought that was a good thing. As I saw, you know, the, the Chinese interest in Jewish studies, as saw the Chinese interest in Jewish companies, the Chinese interest in the, in the ports, as you mentioned, etc. I always thought that was a good thing and certainly good for Israel to get that kind of attention. But in the, in the long run, it's just part of a much bigger plan uh, from the Chinese government, at least the way you're describing it. And what they do is that they get critical infrastructure. They take control of it. And yeah. therefore, you know, the six fleets said they won't, fly, they won't go out of Haifa if in fact, the uh, Chinese control it, and, and Israel backed out of the deal with China buying, you know, they have Chinese front companies that come in and buy it. But Dubai World Ports, you know, buys in a lot of places. And now, you know, Dubai is in better standing. But in the right. past, we had opposed them because a port is a very important control factor and has a lot of security implications aside from the commercial and strategic uh, significance of, of having bases of operation. They're all looking to, to build up their presence. The Russians still want to do it. They, they don't have the resources right now. They're tapped. Ukraine is a, is a big drain on them. Uh, what will happen there also, we didn't discuss the implications yeah. of all of that uh, as well, so but that's true. another chapter. Yeah, so true. I don't even know. Uh, nobody knows what to think about it anymore as that war continues. All right, a couple of things before... We get to Rabbi Yudin. Uh, a couple of things I must ask you. Uh, Israel's enemies, um, they were watching this entire process here in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, etc., watching the country go through this entire conflict. I'm referring, of course, 
to do to judicial reform. Um, anything significant uh, about the fact that the enemies looked on, you know, with great glee that Israel was going through this? Is it any skin off Israel's nose, so to speak, that the world was watching as all this was going on? Yes. If, you, if it impacts commercial deals, if it gives, projects the image of instability, if it uh, sees money draining out or investors not coming in, then that has implications, certainly security implications. I don't know why they talk about it all the time and keep saying that our security, you know, we're threatened and we don't have the ability and we're because of some of the actions of reservists and others. I mean, that's really feeding the enemy. And we saw from Lebanon how they've tested it, you know, with the attempted infiltrations. And thank God they've continued and they have to give military credit and mission that the Mossad you know, how many events they, they have prevented attacks and, and other things and infiltrations, et cetera. Right. Right. Uh, but I, I heard from one key Arab leader, not an enemy, that um, uh, he said to me privately, he said he's concerned about Israel's stability. Well, when, what, was, what Israel sold was that it was the stable corner in the region. That right. It was the country that you could look to, you know, as they call it, the permanent aircraft carrier. And if they get the image that, Israel is somehow unstable, uh, then you're going to see others take advantage. I think a lot of the groups within the Palestinian area who are focused themselves on their internal conflicts but we'll, we'll ultimately see this as a vulnerability. Maybe that's another so, good yes. reason why, why I, BB put it on pause. Maybe that's another good benefit of the pause, frankly. Well, I certainly think it's one of the considerations yeah. and why the Minister of Defense took the stand that he did Right. I mean, he's not a radical guy, uh, extremist who, who would have moved uh, in the way that he did. But I think he genuinely felt what the implications were. So many of the countries look at it. Some, I will tell you, that the people in a lot of the countries are encouraged. They say, look what happens in Israel. Look at right. these demonstrations. Look how people have the right to speak out. Right. So it's a reaffirmation of democracy yeah. if it's supposed to be played right. The problem is that we're fighting each other and not thinking about the larger picture. Right. Two very good points. Uh, finally, Malcolm, and, and look, I and this audience certainly respect the fact that we're talking about people you have to work with every day. So if you have to temper your remarks, no criticism whatsoever. But, but we have to say something. I believe it was outrageous what the President of the United States said this week about a potential visit by Prime Minister Netanyahu. I understand the position of Washington. They've made it very clear about what they think of judicial reform and which side is right and which side is wrong. But to go to that extreme, to actually consider publicly not having the Prime Minister of Israel in Washington, I thought was inappropriate. Your reaction? So, you know, the President... Was called a, it wasn't a prepared statement. It was a response to some things that have been said in Jerusalem where the implication was that this wasn't nothing. I think it was inappropriate to say it. He should say, we, you know, we always welcome our friends and we will uh, could send a positive message. He is angry uh, at Netanyahu over some things. Uh, there are some tensions. But I think overall the relationship will, will be back to being strong. You have a strong support in Congress, although you have members of Congress who are exploiting this and calling on the president, Democratic members who were pressing the president to be more forceful in going after Netanyahu and after about the demonstrations. And I think that that was reflected as, as the president is known often in these off uh, remarks, and then the administration uh, followed up. Right. It may be because they, they didn't want the message that he was, you know, an invitation had been extended. But th there have been talks about a visit. 
and I know that, that there are planned visits uh, to, to Washington in the offing. Uh, whether, I, I, and I can't believe that the president wouldn't receive somebody he's known for more than 40 years. I, as I said, I think the, the intervention in the domestic affairs publicly rather than privately was uh, unfortunate and, and um, you know, a, a, again, a reflection of some of the pressure that uh, they come on from, come on from inter, internal sources and congressional sources. And, uh, um, you know, th- it's detrimental to the long-term interests of the, of the relationship. Yeah. Can't, um, can't disagree with any of that. 100% true. Um, Malcolm, I take this opportunity to wish you a Chag Kasher V'Sameach. The next weekly update, please God, three weeks from today. Again, folks, mark your calendar. Three weeks from today, please God. And it's unusual, Malcolm, for our family to celebrate without you and your wonderful wife being with us and shepping nachas from our family. So this will be a bit unusual. They're going to be so far away during the Simcha, but we we certainly uh, look forward to the next one when we can participate together, please God. We, we look forward to the mutual nachas we derive from the families and seeing the traditions pass on from generation to generation. Uh, what, what's more unusual is that you're in Jerusalem than I'm here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, in the States, but it's sort of a vacuum there. I, I, uh, it's a, such a wonderful time to be in Israel. It's weather-wise and otherwise. We won't ask you publicly if you keep one day or two days while you're there, but uh, whatever, you get to enjoy it. And I hope you will go to the great synagogue, which anxiously looks forward to hosting you. Uh, as the president, I extend a, a very special invitation to you. We'll have a good seat for you. Uh, and, uh, and maybe you can get to Dom for the Amr there. I don't know if you press it enough. Wow, but, this uh, offer keeps getting better and better. Yeah, but that's at Marv. But uh, <laughs> 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 uh, well, exactly. as I told you, yesterday we had the pleasure of davening at the Great Synagogue. It may have been in the small base medrash for Mincha, but we had the pleasure of being right. in that fabulous building. Have a wonderful Shabbos and a Chag Kosher V'Sameach. Chag Kosher V'Sameach to you to everyone and good Shabbos. And I'll be in KJ to mark their 150th anniversary. I'll be speaking there tonight tomorrow. And uh, look forward to seeing many friends there. 150, that means 1870s. That's right. Wow, please send our best to Rabbi Lukstein. I certainly will. Malcolm, he'll be there, Pesach. And he will, we they will bring, see. They bring big groups. Yes, there. we will please and God see him here. Yeah, we will please God right. see him here over Pesach as he's done so many years since, uh, since tourism went down in that era many, many years ago. Rabbi Lukstein made the commitment to be here with this congregants every Pesach. Thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful with, And with Mayor Weingarten, Mayor, arranged it. Yes. But I started in the, in the tough years doing Intifada. They yes. went, but it was Mayor who went with them and helped organize. And if you're mentioning Mayor of Blessed Memory, who I've thought of a thousand times during this trip already for a million different reasons, uh, we should mention Sandy Eisenstadt as well. He was one of the backbones of that whole Absolutely. journey. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, and Malcolm. I introduced him to Mayor. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos and the Chag Sameach. Malcolm Holmline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents, major American Jewish organizations with us Friday's weekly update here at JM in the AM. Next weekly update, please, God, the 21st, three weeks from today, right here at JM in the AM.